Good afternoon. Uh, this is Greg Lois, and I'm here today for a very fun webinar. Uh, this is going to be our year in review. We're going to look at everything new in New Jersey over the course of the last year. I'm going to talk about case law, and I'm going to talk about uh, some fun uh, decisions, and I'm also going to talk about medical provider claims, and I'm going to provide sort of a brief recap of the presentation that I provided to the Bench Bar Conference in December, so that should be a lot of fun. Now, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about what's new, and particularly around the firm. Uh, the firm grew dramatically this year, and that's really thank you to our clients uh, who have supported us. Uh, from starting this firm four years ago to today, uh, we are now 28 attorneys defending employers throughout all of New York from top to bottom and all of New Jersey. So uh, that's a great, phenomenal growth, and that's really a testament to our amazing clients. It's a pleasure to work with you every day. It's a pleasure to work with the people here every day, and I thank everyone for that. Uh, this year, uh, in 2020, we've got a number of new handbooks out, and I hope everybody's had the opportunity to grab a copy of each. So our New York handbook, uh, it's the Soup to Nuts Workers' Comp 101 for New York Workers' Compensation Law, our New Jersey handbook. And by the way, this webinar uh, roughly follows uh, the chapters of our New Jersey Workers' Compensation handbook. New for this year is uh, written by my partner, Tashia Razul, is our defending catastrophic uh, construction loss claims, a New York-specific construction-specific defense handbook, uh, really a go-to guide for how to put together and defend large projects and OSIPs. Um, of course, uh, we also have uh, our podcast series, and I encourage everyone to check that out. Uh, if you really wanna get like a second level or a 201 level in, in sort of a companion to these 101 level workers' compensation webinars. Uh, the Third Fridays podcast, which comes down on the third Friday of every month and hosted by my partner, Christian Cison, is really that higher order uh, 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 sort of 201 level training. And the last thing is uh, I write the book for LexisNexis. Uh, this is the handbook uh, that's used. Oops, I have it facing the wrong direction, thanks. Uh, this is really the handbook for workers' compensation. Uh, anybody who's interested in a copy of this handbook, please let me know. I've got a bunch of them uh, to give out. And the most recent one, uh, copy of the bench uh, handbook here is 2019. All right, uh, I also want to remark, I down here and get this. Uh, we have a calendar out, which has our new monthly schedule. So the first Monday of the month is our New Jersey webinar. I'm sorry, construction defense webinar. Second Monday is our risk transfer webinar. Third Monday of the month is our New York workers' compensation webinar. And the fourth Monday of the month, uh, you're here for today, is our New Jersey workers' compensation webinar. So uh, feel free to drop in on any of those. Also, those are available in our live podcasts as well. So that's a lot of fun. All right, so that's a little bit about what's new here and what's changed for this year. Let's dive into what's new in New Jersey. So today we're going to talk about a new case law. We're going to talk about some final statistics and trends that we've seen. And particularly, I'm going to talk about that in regards to medical provider claims. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, uh, what's pending. I can answer any questions you want about pending legislation. I'm going to try to give as much practical information as I can today. And of course, this is always live. So please ask your questions. It makes it so much more fun for me. You can type in questions while I'm talking. I'll see them pop up. And at the end, I'll answer your questions. And as always, I will not say your name, uh, just your first name. I'll not say your last name. And I will read your question aloud for the whole group and try to answer it as best I can. So uh, let's have a little fun today. Please ask me your questions. I'm always happy to answer them. All right, uh, let's talk about the first case. Uh, uh, this case is called Boot 
versus aluminum shapes. I think I'm gonna say this. Now, I'm gonna say this other thing here, which is that in New Jersey, very few cases, uh, trial decisions go all the way up to New Jersey's appellate division and almost none ever go to the Supreme Court. This year, I think there were 28 appellate division decisions of note. Of those, I've only picked a group, a small group that I thought were interesting or useful for employers. And so uh, I'm not gonna go through every case that was decided in New Jersey this year. I'm only gonna go through the ones that I thought were most interesting. So Food First American Aluminum Shapes, this case is decided on June 10, 2019. Now this is a uh, fighting case or an intentional injury case. And here are the facts of this case. My coworker was sitting with their feet up on a bench. I, the petitioner, asked him to move his legs twice so that I could pass him by. They're in the locker room getting changed to go to work. Uh, the petitioner had to ultimately jump over the other guy's legs, and while he's jumping over the other guy's legs, uh, the other guy sort of kicks him up and trips him up and knocks him over. Okay, No fight occurs at that point, but then later on, uh, uh, the petitioner uh, got uh, thrown a cup of soda at as well, the same person who allegedly tripped over each other. Um, later on in the day, you now a while goes by, uh, the uh, petitioner is walking along and this time gets a pizza box thrown at them, an empty pizza box. At that point, the petitioner gets enraged and starts punching out the other guy. All right, so the question is uh, whether this fight in a locker room uh, starts in a locker room and ends up outside the locker room with a pizza box being thrown at somebody is work related. Uh, now, it is a fact that in this case, uh, that there was no one, uh, no non-work animus. There's no reason uh, by the uh, that why these guys were fighting. In other words, they didn't owe each other money in the office football pool. They weren't dating the same lady. As far as we know, this is purely confined to this disagreement they've had in the workplace. The judge of compensation found the injuries compensable and said that they were non-intentional injuries. That these are two guys uh, who were too close to for comfort and the injuries arose out of it in the course of the employment. The employer says, what the heck? Uh, we're taking this up to the appellate division and the case goes up to the appellate division. Unfortunately for the employer, uh, the appellate division affirmed the judge of compensation and essentially said, you know, the petitioner, yeah, he did participate in this, but from what we can tell, uh, he didn't really start the aggressive behavior. He seems to have been the victim of this aggressive behavior. Uh, we don't know why these guys started pushing each other around in the locker room, uh, but based on what we're seeing, we do think this is work-related. And so this was found compensable, as strange as this may be, and as uh, ridiculous as we think these facts patterns might be. This one was ultimately found compensable by the appellate division in New Jersey. All right, uh, next case. Uh, here's another case, and this one's actually amazing to me, and I want to focus a little bit on the holding in this case. This case is called Martin versus Newark Public Schools. Uh, it was just decided in December, and actually uh, the attorney who argued this case for the petitioner, uh, I'm very familiar with, a very good attorney, and here's what happens in this case, Martin versus Newark Public Schools. Martin, uh, is a this is an admitted uh, compensable loss. The only issue is uh, the need for further medical treatment and specifically opiates, uh, because uh, this is a motion for med intent that comes before the workers' compensation judge, and essentially the claimant is arguing that they uh, need to be entitled to more opiates. Now, the treating doctor, Doctor Grob, uh, 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 admits, okay, admits uh, that the. Percocet, the claimant was was poorly treating his pain and that prolonged narcotic use would not manage his ridiculous complaints and in fact could complicate his surgery, his recovery, sorry. The same doctor suggested surgery or epidural injections 
uh, and that could address the petitioner's pain in lieu of opioid medication. Uh, however, the claimant files a motion for med and temp, and interestingly, uh, uh, argues that the uh, treatment needs to go on forever, uh, and, and says, I need these opiates. Their own treating physician admits, uh, essentially, that the treatment wasn't useful. The claimant goes out and gets a one-time evaluation with a Dr. Bram. Dr. Bram says, essentially, uh, you know what, further opiates is reasonable, and he should be on opiates uh, going forward in the future. So here's this bizarro circumstance where the treating physician is admitting the treatment going forward isn't really getting him any better, but it is managing his pain. And because that doesn't really, isn't add up enough to sustain emotion for medical benefits, uh, the judge really can't uh, award benefits based on saying, well, yeah, it's more of the same. It's not going to get him any better. Uh, the petitioner goes out and gets a one-time examination. Uh, the judge of compensation said, you know what, further opioids are not effective anymore, and I am denying this motion, so I am not going to grant the motion. This was appealed by the petitioner, and interestingly, the petitioner took the position in the argument that the one-time evaluation with Dr. Bram should have been given as much, if not more, weight than the opinion of the treating physician who says the care is essentially palliative and was not improving him. Well, the appellate division agreed with the judge of compensation, and this is actually a great case for the defense because uh, here's a case in which when the treating physician cannot show that there has been improvement from a course of care and the respondent terminates that care, uh, a one-time evaluation from some out-of-court expert that was selected by the petitioner is not going to be enough to overcome the treating uh, uh, physician's opinion. Oftentimes, this works against uh, the respondent, right? Because how many times as a respondent uh, do we ever have the treating physician admitting, hey, you know what, this isn't making him better, it just makes him feel better, it's really just palliative at this point. Uh, almost never, it's almost always the treating physician arguing for more and more opiates and more and more care and us having to go out and get that one-time evaluation. So a uh, good case uh, really for the defense and a very interesting fact pattern as well in this case. All right. Uh, the next case I have is called Carabello versus Jackson Dawson. This case was decided on March 26 of 2019, and the issue really in this case uh, is whether Carabello was a employee or not an employee of the uh, 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 alleged employer Jackson Dawson. Now, he's a forklift driver, and he's actually employed by the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority. Uh, one thing about New Jersey is it's so corrupt uh, that I love to have an authority uh, have control over all of public assets because you can't put the public assets in the, under the control of the local politicians. So they've created an authority. The authority is in control of uh, the stadiums and the stadium uh, employees. In this one case, a union employee, he drives a forklift. Uh, now, in order to get your setup for your uh, project or for your conference or your show at the Izod Center in New Jersey, uh, Jackson Dawson uh, was required uh, to use a union forklift driver who was contracted to him from the New Jersey Sports and Exposition Authority. All right, uh, the question is who was his employer? because uh, poor Mr. Carabello, while moving around things with his forklift, had a number of heavy drums that I think were filled with water tumble down onto him and perhaps harm him. And so the court, uh, Workers' Compensation Court, uh, uh, had to consider the five-factor test to determine if this person was an employee or not of Jackson Dawson. Uh, now, the interesting moment is that in the Superior Court, they granted summary judgment to Jackson Dawson saying essentially, yes, he is your employee uh, because you contracted for his services. 
However, this case went up to the appellate division and it goes up to the appellate division on the interesting question of, uh, was there enough control over this employee by Jackson Dawson? Now they told him what to do. Uh, in fact, apparently when he complained to them and said, look, that's a two man job, I can't do it by myself. Uh, they said, nope, go do it anyway. And that's when he got hurt. So interestingly, they do seem to be controlling and directing him. It doesn't seem like they had the ability to hire, fire, or recall him because they simply uh, accepted him or didn't have any opportunity to select him or vet him. Uh, but this one went up to the appellate court and they said, you know what, um, I think uh, uh, you, know, you could have more proceedings uh, as to whether or not he is your employee, but uh, you know, based on what we know, he does seem to have been uh, under the direction and control of Jackson Dawson. So that's an interesting outcome there. Next. Uh, Collis versus Raritan River. This is a case that's going to have a lot of impact on New Jersey employer and self-insurance. In Collis versus Raritan River, this case is decided July 19th, 2019. It, it, it concerns the attorney's fee in a dependency case. Now, I've been practicing New Jersey workers' compensation law for 20 years, and in all that time, in the dependency action, the award, if the widow or surviving spouse obtains an award, it is for a closed 450-week period. So in most death cases, uh, the widow or spouse gets the initial award, which is paid out over weeks, and the attorney representing the widow spouse uh, gets an attorney's fee, which is typically 20% of that 450-week award, so about 20% of the initial award period. Now, should the widow or surviving spouse live past 450 weeks, which is about nine years, uh, they continue to get benefits. But the attorney doesn't get a new fee just because they exceeded that nine-year period. That's kind of how it's always been done. Well, in this case, uh, Collis, the widow, was awarded dependency benefits. And the attorney argued, well, the fee shouldn't be just calculated in the first 450 weeks. The fee should be calculated on uh, her entire life expectancy, which would be dramatically higher and which would yield a dramatically higher fee to the petitioner's attorney. Uh, the trial court... Uh, granted a fee, which would be much higher than that normal 450-week-based fee, uh, based on the widow's life expectancy. How did the appellate court rule? Well, the appellate court said, yeah, you can do that. It said there's no limitation, and you're not required to use that 450-week period as a limitation on the attorney's fee. So in cases where you're resolving or settling a dependency dispute, this should now be addressed always by defense counsel. Make sure you're saying, hey, uh, the award is going to be based on uh, some number, meaning the award of attorney's fees, and not the life expectancy. Because the life expectancy, if you ask me, is a little bit subjective. Uh, it's speculative. Uh, it's a little bit difficult, and I would be uh, loath to recommend that to a client. If you're going to settle a dependency case, I also recommend you consider making an argument or uh, taking a position with your adversary that you're going to fix the attorney's fee based on something and not simply the life expectancy. However, the appellate court has now said you can do that. All right. Next case is my case. Uh, this is also a reported decision. Now, interestingly, I argued this case actually in November of 2018. But the appellate court decision came out in July of 2019. Haggad's an interesting case because it has interesting facts. Uh, the finding of the appellate division we'll talk about in one second. So here I have my truck driver. He's leaving my workplace. And for some reason, this is the end of the workday. He gets in his truck. He puts his foot on the gas. He never hits the brakes. And he just takes off out of our, our location. Our location is a construction yard. There's tons of debris. He apparently hits a pile of gravel, which sends the truck airborne into the air, 
He goes flying through the air again. He never hits the brakes. He crashes the truck and he gets injured. Uh, he's taken to the hospital for broken legs, hip injuries, et cetera. He's significantly injured. Uh, after he's in the hospital, someone's dispatched from the employer to say, why did this accident take place? It doesn't make any sense. It looks like from the observers that he leaves the site. He just hits the gas. He floors it all the way into a pile of debris as fast as he can. He never hit the brakes. Uh, interestingly, inside of his vehicle were found to be vials of synthetic urine. Uh, they t dispatch an investigator uh, to the hospital. Uh, they ask the claimant to take a blood urinalysis or blood toxicology to uh, do the normal screening that they do after every single accident. Um, even though medical care was provided, uh, because the claimant refused routine drug testing at the hospital, the employer refused to pay temporary disability benefits, saying essentially, look, we'll pay for medical, okay, uh, but we shouldn't have to pay for temporary disability benefits because he's voluntarily refusing to do something that we need to have done in order for him to be eligible for work here. Uh, routine drug testing goes on in this employment. He's been routine drug tested before. So we want to do a test to make sure the intoxication, perhaps presumed intoxication, is not the cause of this accident. And also, by the way, we found synthetic urine in his vehicle. Uh, the judge of compensation agreed uh, that with the claimant saying, nope, that's not fair. You can't confront somebody in the hospital and say, take this test. And they awarded temporary disability benefits. Uh, this was appealed by a predecessor firm, and I was the one who actually did the oral argument, explaining to the appellate division uh, the basis for withholding temporary disability benefits, which is essentially he's refusing to uh, cooperate with a normal incident of the employment. And but for him taking the drug test, they would have been able to offer him some kind of temporary disability and or accommodated work. But because he's refusing to do it, he's essentially withdrawing from the employment. It's essentially the same thing as a resignation. Um, now, the appellate division didn't 100% agree with that argument. They just remanded it back to the trial judge and said, I think we need some more findings and testimony on that issue. Again, a very clear-cut case, if you were to ask me, uh, there's absolutely nothing explained for this gentleman's accident except for must be intoxication. Uh, and that is the argument that the employer makes in saying essentially we're not going to pay temporary disability benefits because he's refusing uh, to cooperate with the drug test, which by the way, we do routinely. He's taken them here in the past and we do it after every accident. So uh, that demonstrates the usefulness of drug screening and toxicology tests and also regular routine drug and uh, alcohol testing for our employees who are operating uh, vehicles has to be to all employees, but uh, very useful. All right, uh, next, Haggerty versus Crothel Service Corp Group. I, I put a little picture of a telephone in here because I think uh, this is uh, an interesting case just for the way the what the judge did in this case. And this kind of shows you how informal things can be in workers' compensation court and why you always have to be on your toes, defense counsel. Uh, so this case was decided May 3, 2019. And there's a dispute in a workers' compensation case about the need for an experimental therapy. Um, you know, the, these are common things where the petitioner wants the sun, the moon, the stars, and they want some of these experimental therapies. Maybe they've heard about it working uh, for their favorite football players. So things like platelet-rich plasma injections or stem cell treatments and all sorts of other things that are re really close to pseudoscience and not really proven. You know, they can make a motion for med intent for it, and the judge of compensation has latitude to hear both sides, determine if it's going to be curative or not, and either award or not award it. Well, in this case, the judge of compensation uh, allowed the petitioner's attorney to call uh, the claimant's treating physician from Chambers, 
So they're not on the record. Uh, there's no stenographer present. They allowed petitioner's attorney to call the doctor and ask the doctor questions out loud on speakerphone, presumably in front of everybody, but in chambers. Uh, the uh, judge of compensation spoke to the doctor directly and asked questions directly of the doctor about whether this treatment would be curative or helpful for the petitioner. It's unclear what Respondents Council did, uh, but because this uh, case took place in South Jersey, I'm imagining exactly what went on in chambers. Uh, end result is the judge of compensation awards the treatment. Respondents attorney appeals. The case goes up to the appellate division. And this case was uh, overturned or remanded by the appellate division saying the judge of compensation should not be taking evidence in this manner. Uh, the judge of compensation shouldn't be just calling up witnesses on the phone and asking them questions and then using that as the basis to either award or not award benefits. It's not fair to the parties. Uh, the respondent uh, employer didn't have the opportunity to cross-examine this witness or presumably even prepare for that kind of off-the-cuff phone call. Uh, it also goes to show a little bit about the tenor of these conversations that go on in court sometimes. Uh, you know, where the, uh, the, again, the judge wants to do things in an expeditious manner. The judge wants to make sure the petitioner needs the treatment they want. But sometimes the rights of the parties aren't always respected. And, and here's an example of that, uh, where an off-the-record conversation with presumably the treating physician and perhaps an expert witness is going on and then uses the basis for an opinion. Um, we have to be careful in workers' compensation court. We do want speedy justice, but there needs to be some uh, counterbalance, and that would be the due process rights of the parties. All right, next case, uh, very brief. I'm going to talk about this very briefly because it's a public entities case. Kakanelsi is a volunteer for the township of Bridgewater uh, in a case decided February 19, 2019. Even though she had no wages and was not working at the time of her injuries, which occurred while working as a volunteer for the township of Bridgewater, uh, the uh, appellate division found that she doesn't have to show any wages to be eligible for wage replacement benefits because she is a volunteer. So uh, volunteers, and particularly volunteer firefighters, don't have to show any wages in order to be eligible for um, maximum wage replacement benefits. Uh, that changed the law in New Jersey, and I can tell you a lot of... Um, uh, uh, municipalities and public entities need to be very careful of this because there's something like 600 plus little towns and municipalities in New Jersey and a lot of them have volunteer fire departments and ambulance departments and now they're going to be on the hook uh, for wage replacement benefits for people who are not working and never have worked and have no intention of working. Uh, so this creates a legal fiction in their favor. All right, next case is going to affect any case you have in which there is a third-party settlement going on. In this case, is called Liberty Mutual versus Rodriguez. Uh, now, in New Jersey, statutorily, uh, this case decided April 2, 2019, by the way, statutorily, uh, pursuant to the rules of court, and I've placed it here up on the screen, in a personal injury lawsuit, the petitioner's or the plaintiff's attorney is limited as to how much they can get for attorney's fees. So uh, they can get 33.3% of the first 500000 30% of the next 500,000, 25% of the next 500,000, 20% on the next 500,000, and after $2 million, they get a award of attorney's fees as per the statute. So uh, there, that's the, the rule that is going to affect uh, how much attorney's fees the petitioner's attorney can get. Well, in this case, the issue is how much does the uh, worker's compensation carrier get reimbursed? because the petitioner's counsel is getting their fee calculated on sort of a sliding scale with the amount of this fee diminishing, the more they recover for the claimant. The plaintiff's argument was, well, workers' compensation carrier shouldn't get the benefit of that. They should 
only get the benefit of the scale uh, of the sliding scale up until the value of the benefits paid. Uh, the workers' compensation cases in this case totaled $148,590. Um, there was a $12 million civil recovery. And so here's an example of the plaintiff's attorney trying to cram down uh, the amount uh, that the workers' compensation carrier could recover from that massive $12 million recovery. It turned out that fees paid of the overall total $12 million recovery was about 30.56%. And so it was the position of the workers' compensation carrier that they should be reimbursed 69.44%. That, that would be uh, fair. Uh, petitioners or plaintiff's counsel disagreed, arguing that it should be limited uh, further because of the sliding nature scale. They should only receive 66% uh, because that's what they would have been due uh, or to be reimbursed on the first $500,000 pursuant to the sliding scale under the law. Uh, Liberty Mutual, the workers' compensation carrier, appealed this, and we've obtained a very good uh, ruling on this, which very clearly says, nope, uh, whether or not there's a sliding scale in place, the reimbursement right of the carrier is on the total amount of the award less the percentage paid for attorney's fees and costs, and of course, costs are limited to $750. And so the carrier is entitled to reimbursement of 69.44%. And in this case, it didn't move a ton of money. Uh, it was really a 3% difference in the total award. But this is very useful for all cases going forward. Uh, and this is why it's imperative that when you are seeking recovery from a third-party uh, uh, tortfeasor, that we absolutely need to get the attorney's uh, uh, fee agreement and the exact amount actually paid so that you can get your maximum reimbursement. Um, I think this is the last case we're going to talk about today. This is Quiles versus County of Warren. And the reason I put this case in there is just because it's got an interesting fact pattern. And also, my clients often ask me about idiopathic injuries in New Jersey. This case was decided on February 13, 2019. And there's two issues really in this case. One is idiopathic, and the other is reviewing the proofs. So in this case, uh, the claimant is a corrections officer. He works for the county government. And he claims that walking up and down a flight of stairs one day at work uh, caused him to develop an ACL tear in his knee, a pretty significant, pretty acute tear. Uh, he claims that uh, the injury occurred and that it is work-related. The employer says, no, it's not. The only thing you claim you were doing is walking up and down a flight of stairs. There's nothing peculiar or distinctive about that in the employment. And by the way, corrections officer, this entire facility is under video surveillance. So I have video of you and I see you going up and down this flight of stairs the day you say you got hurt. And we see nothing on the video that looks like any kind of accident. The employee's doctor um, says, well, he was wearing heavy boots because he was required to wear steel tip boots. And he did have some equipment on him in his uh, belt and perhaps his clothes and boots and equipment all weighed 25 pounds. And therefore, uh, the walking up and down the stairs with all that weight on him uh, could be uh, compensable. So uh, the trial court, the workers' compensation judge says, you know what, I've watched the video. I don't find it very convincing. I think he could have gotten hurt the way he claims he was from wearing his equipment and walking up and down a flight of stairs. And for that reason, I find it compensable. The appellate decision uh, really just closely followed uh, what was found in the workers' compensation court and said, well, the judge had the opportunity to listen to the witnesses. The judge watched the video and didn't find it very compelling because it doesn't show anything uh, or kind of discounted it. And we're going to say this is not idiopathic. 
Now, I don't think you're ever going to see a better case than this, where you literally have a video of the claimant walking up a flight of stairs, there's no stumble, there's no fall, there's no trip, the employee then later claims that's the injury, and you can show that video to the judge of compensation. But this case goes to show uh, the lengths to which a judge of compensation will go to find anything compensable. Uh, the courts do not like the concept of idiopathic loss or, hey, it just happened because it happened. Uh, the, the courts are more likely to find uh, that it is the result of some sort of uh, workplace accident. And really, that's been very consistent. And this case really does just show that. All right. Uh, last thing I want to leave you with, because uh, it's kind of interesting and it's quite near and dear to my heart, is a brief discussion of medical provider claims in New Jersey. So I'm going to give a little update. Uh, let's quickly talk about what happened, the state of the law, before the law changed in 2012. Uh, medical providers uh, who believed uh, they had provided treatment to a workers' compensation claimant, so here's your claimant, goes to the medical doctor, uh, and they're not happy with the amount of money they got paid by the workers' compensation insurer. In New Jersey, because there is no fee schedule, they had an opportunity to seek justice one of four ways. First, if no workers' compensation claim petition had been filed, they could go file a direct action against the insurer or employer in superior court. Um, if there was no claim petition filed in workers' compensation court, they could file their own workers' compensation claim petition. If there was a workers' compensation claim petition, they could file their own application in the Division of Workers' Compensation, which would then travel along as a separate claim in the workers' comp court. And if there already was a workers' compensation claim filed by the claimant, they could make a motion to intervene and become a party to that case, seeking payment, additional payment, uh, for their uh, uh, treatment. And in the pre-2012 old days, uh, there were a lot of these, but in 2012, the law changed, and now the law says that if you have a medical bill issue, if you're a medical provider and you believe you've been underpaid by the workers' compensation carrier, uh, you now have to file those medical fee disputes in the Division of Workers' Compensation. Now, this has really opened up a deluge of these, these a lot of these cases being filed in the Workers' Compensation Courts. Um, I, I put it here on the slide, they say begin the deluge because it has now become something like one in five claims pending before the Division of Workers' Compensation is actually a medical provider claim. And what's really happening here is medical providers are simply assigning their claims to law firms who are then bringing them uh, at high volume. Uh, in New Jersey, uh, 20 years ago, approximately 50,000 workers' compensation claims filed, very few medical provider claims. Nowadays, there's more in the range of 30,000 workers' compensation claims filed, and five or 6,000 of those, uh, or about 20% of the total market, will be medical provider claims. So we spend a lot of time dealing with these. Uh, they can often be quite expensive, and many of them have jurisdictional issues. And the reason for that is uh, it's become a ploy for uh, workers' compensation claimants who are uh, receiving benefits in another state. So, for example, New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, they are injured under in those states, they are recovering at law under those um, state statutes to cross into New Jersey and get medical care in New Jersey. And they're doing this at the request of their doctor, who's really saying, hey, I have admitting privileges here to Manhattan Hospital, but why don't you come to my place over in Union County, New Jersey, or Bergen County, New Jersey, my ambulatory surgery center, and get care there? And the reason the doctor's doing that is because then they can try to charge New Jersey's usual and customary costs for that uh, medical care, which greatly exceeds what the doctor would be able to obtain for that same treatment 
under New York's medical fee schedule or under Pennsylvania's fee schedule. And when I say greatly exceeds, I mean five to 10 times more money under UNC than they would be due in New York. So a great example is a simple knee surgery in New York, uh, knee arthroscopy under the fee schedule would be a thirteen dollars or $14,000 procedure. In New Jersey, routinely sixty dollars or $70,000 procedure. So you see many of these ambulatory surgery centers being used by New York jurisdiction doctors uh, to funnel uh, their patients into New Jersey so that they can then bring these claims in New Jersey. Um, also, even though the workers' compensation claims have had a two-year statute of limitations, it was really unknown. And in fact, my co-author and I, when we were writing our book, uh, had a lot of arguments about what the statute of limitations for these cases would be. But, you know, we argued in the book that it was two-year statute of limitations. Well, uh, that's been decided now. There's now a case called a Plastic Surgery Center versus Maloof. That case was decided January 17, 2019. And it addresses the issue of what is the statute of limitations for one of these medical provider claims. Again, a New Jersey workers' compensation claim has a two-year statute of limitations. The appellate division, uh, in this case, involving a New Jersey workers' compensation claim, a New Jersey employer, uh, where the accident occurred in New Jersey, and where there was a New Jersey medical provider, the court determined that there is a six-year statute of limitations and that the statute of limitations in these cases has really been based on a contract theory. Okay, so now we know it's six years. Well, what's also happened is we're seeing a deluge and a fresh deluge of new cases uh, based on, on jurisdictional claims, arguing that these New York claimants and these Connecticut claimants and these Pennsylvania claimants still should be able to bring or get medical treatment in New Jersey and then demand that New Jersey's uh, lack of fee schedule apply so they can get paid back whatever they want. I point out that Plastic Surgery Center versus Maloof is really the first and most important case we've had on medical provider claims. And it does not decide certain things. So it doesn't say or find that the workers' compensation court had specific jurisdictional limitations in regards to handling extra, extra jurisdictional, extraterritorial disputes. And it does not say that New Jersey has jurisdiction over any case just because treatment took place in New Jersey. It's not the facts of PSC versus Maloof. And it does not say that location of treatment alone would be basis for jurisdiction in New Jersey. So I still believe, even post-PSE versus Malone, Maloof, excuse me, that our jurisdictional defenses exist. The only thing that's changed is we now have been instructed by the courts that the statute of limitation in these cases is not two years like a regular workers' compensation case, but instead six years under a contractual theory. So that's the only thing that's different. And, you know, medical provider cases can be disputed and should be defended vigorously because the amounts in dispute often will exceed the value of the workers' or exposure of the workers' compensation claim. All right. Uh, so that's everything that's new this year, and I'm happy to answer questions. Hoping there are some questions right now in our live section of live question and answer. So if you haven't typed your question in yet, please do so now so I can answer them and have a little bit of fun. And I'm coming over here right now. I don't see any typed into me, but maybe uh, everybody's out there typing as fast as they possibly can to get their exciting question in. Uh, or uh, this was so much fun and so informative. There just maybe are no questions, but I'll keep this window open for just a second while we see if there's any uh, fun questions coming in. Um, I'm also going to remind everyone at this time about our new monthly schedule I talked about at the beginning. Uh, the first Monday of the month will be our construction defense webinar. Second Monday of the month is our risk transfer webinar. And we did talk about a case today uh, that 
uh, is interesting and will affect risk transfer in New Jersey in regards to the percentage of reimbursement obtainable by a carrier or employer from the proceeds of a third-party claim. Uh, the third Monday of the month is always our New York Workers' Compensation webinar, and the fourth Monday is our New Jersey Workers' Compensation webinar. All right, uh, Jill writes in. This isn't a question, Jill. She just writes, thanks, very informative. This was fun. All right, girl, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed uh, talking to everybody this year. I'm very thankful for what a great 2019. As I look back on this year, I thought it was great from a uh, client's perspective and from winning a court perspective. And I'm looking forward to a wonderful 2020. All right, everybody. Hope you have a great week, and I'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.